Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 70, The Second Punic War, To the Victor. The Battle of Cannae was a devastating blow to the Republic, and it would have been a death knell for many lesser states in the ancient world. But much to the ire of his officers, Hannibal declined to march upon Rome and chose to remain in southern Italy. While the Romans were certainly brutalized, they had done anything but author terms of surrender, and were ready and waiting for any Carthaginian foray against their city. This defiance was not lost upon Hannibal, who, despite achieving one of the greatest military victories in history, was faced with the grim reality that the odds had not shifted too much in his favor, and that more bodies would be needed to fill his ranks. In conjunction with the defeats at the Trebi and Trasimene, the outcome of the battle convinced a number of Italian cities that the Romans were likely a lost cause. The Punic commander was careful to grant clemency to any non-Roman prisoners he captured, even going so far as to explain to the Italian POWs at Cannae that his wish was to only wage war against Rome and not her allies. Italian peoples such as the Samnites, Brutians, and Lucanians, all tribes of southern Italy, leapt upon the opportunity to fight back against the Romans. The predominantly Greek city of Tarentum, modern Toronto, was betrayed in a plot to Hannibal's army in 213. But the most important settlement to change sides was Capua. Nestled in the region of Campania, nearly 200 kilometers southwest of Rome, the nutrient-rich volcanic soil made Capua one of the most agriculturally productive sites in all of Italy. It was also quite close to Latium, and Hannibal was eventually able to use it as his headquarters for the winter of 216 to 215. In terms of paper strength, this meant that up to 40% of Rome's Italian manpower would have gone over to Hannibal's side at various points throughout the war. This growing dependence on the loyalty of rebellious Italian cities would prove to be quite the burden on Hannibal, and in many cases it outright backfired. While the Senate was able to dictate terms to these various communities through a complex system of alliances, the Barcid was experiencing great difficulty in trying to handle the politics of each city that defected to him. For instance, Hannibal needed to intervene between the Brutians and the Greek cities of southern Italy, the former looking to plunder the communities of the latter. Many of these treaties would demand Hannibal's protection in case a consular army showed up at their doorstep, which is indeed what happened. In the wake of Cannae, the Romans finally agreed to adhere to the Fabian strategy and capitalize on their strengths, opting for the strategic placement of multiple armies across Italy to guard against and harass any Carthaginian movements. Those such as Fabius Maximus and Marcus Claudius Marcellus, the shield and sword of Rome, would guide this initiative. During their failed attempts to capture the cities of Nola and Neapolis in 216, the preoccupied Carthaginian army was savaged on the initiative of Marcellus and driven off the battlefield with severe casualties. This was the first defeat since their descent from the Alps, and even some of Hannibal's Iberian infantry and Numidian horsemen defected to the victorious Roman camp. Unable to coax his enemies into a pitched battle, Hannibal could do little against the skirmishes and raids that ate away at his remaining manpower. In spite of the defections by their peers and the generosity of Hannibal towards captured prisoners, most of the Sakii chose to remain allied to the Republic. This meant that Hannibal would have to engage in time-consuming and costly sieges to try and assert his authority over these regions, 
often meeting heavy resistance as he made them submit by force. Rome's renewed vigor and seemingly bottomless supply of manpower was bad enough, but she could not tolerate the rebellions of its former allies, and aggressively pushed to retake many of these settlements to show no weakness in front of their loyal Sakii. Though the Senate was willing to provide generous offers of clemency should they return to the fold, their vengeance against those that didn't was swift and brutal. Any one of the captured cities would face the mass execution of its leadership, or worse, the unleashing of legionaries to sack the city and enslave the populace. Placed under siege by Rome in 212, Capua was now a virtual albatross around the neck of Barca, as was Tarentum when it was passed back and forth, which demanded his precious time and attention. According to authors like Livy and Appian, Hannibal's stay in Capua was actually a major turning point for the Carthaginian army as a whole. Apparently, Capua earned a reputation in antiquity for being somewhat of a Sodom and Gomorrah, and for the battle-hardened veterans who suffered through the abhorrent living conditions and the stress of one battle after another, the temptations of the city was enough to erode their fighting ability throughout their winter stay in 216. Most discount this idea as stereotypical moralizing, and the supposedly poor performance could be explained away by the reality that, well, there were not that many veterans left to corrupt. Severe casualties taken at Canai and subsequent engagements were causing issues, and the minuscule number of reinforcements sent by Carthage, much of which would be diverted to other theaters of war like Spain and Sicily, made Hannibal ever more reliant on less experienced Italian troops. Such were the events that occupied the southern peninsula between 216 and 212. The siege of Capua had intensified in 211 as its populace starved. Hannibal could not allow it to fall, lest it irrevocably damage his reputation among the other Italian cities under his protection and return a valuable foothold to the Romans. In an attempt to draw the attention of the besiegers, Hannibal opted to invade Latium for the first and only time throughout the entire war. By using a series of tricks, much of the Punic army was able to sneak away from Capua without raising suspicion, and the inhabitants of Rome were in shock to see the influx of refugees from local villages that Hannibal had been attacking. The Senate debated on whether or not to recall the force at Capua to defend the city, Though Fabius firmly put his foot down and pointed out that it was probably a ruse in order to disrupt the siege. To compromise, about 15,000 men were sent to meet Hannibal in Latium, while the rest of the army would maintain their siege. Near the gates of Rome itself, the Roman and Carthaginian armies were locked in a standoff, but before any battle could properly commence, a fierce storm sent lightning and hail down upon the troops who scattered from the field perhaps taking it as a sign of divine displeasure, or the fact that he had already acquired a satisfactory amount of booty, Hannibal retreated from Latium back to Campania, only to discover that not only did he make little impact on the conduct of the besieging army, but his ploy cost him the region. By the late summer of 211, the citizens of Capua surrendered to the Romans under the mistaken impression that Hannibal had abandoned them. While they hoped that their willingness to capitulate would engender goodwill from the Romans, these feelings were not reciprocated. The enraged commanders saw the leading politicians and members of Capua beaten and beheaded, and the rest of the Capuans were sold into slavery and had their land auctioned off. Less than two years later, Tarentum would finally succumb to the generalship of Fabius, enduring a vicious sack that would see the deportation of its population and plundering of the city's wealth. 
The capture of Capua and Tarentum had eliminated the fiercest anti-Roman parties among the southern Italians, which marked the downfall of Hannibal's position in the region. Plutarch claims that the loss of Tarentum was the point at which Hannibal knew, deep down, that the conquest of Italy was now all but impossible. Still, the Barcid was not yet beaten, and despite his perennial juggling act, he inflicted a number of wounds against the Romans that kept them on their toes. In 212, a centurion named Marcus Centenius Panula received command of a large army, based on his supposed knowledge of Campania and Capua, which in theory would have allowed him to prevent the Carthaginians from disrupting the siege. Hannibal managed to bait this centurion into leading an ill-conceived charge that wiped out almost the entirety of his 16,000-man force. A few months later, Hannibal killed another 16,000 near the town of Herdonia in Apulia. In 210, the consul Gnaeus Fulvius Cintumalus was overseeing a siege of Herdonia, and Barca led a surprise attack against the Roman camp and slaughtered another 8,000 men, including the consul himself. But the most devastating blow to the Republic would come in 208. Since he had returned to Italy in 211 after his spectacular campaign in Sicily, Marcellus had spent most of his time battling jealous political rivals rather than assuming command in the field. Though he had demonstrated himself a capable and level-headed general in the past, Plutarch states that Marcellus had become obsessed with protecting his honor and meeting Hannibal on the field of battle. He eventually would get his wish, though not in the manner he was expecting. Barca was traveling near the town of Venusia in modern Potenza, attempting to relieve a besieged allied town, only to come across the army of Marcellus and his co-consul Crispinus. Rather than attacking them head-on or occupying a fortified hill, Hannibal chose to hide several troops among the nearby trees and woods. In an uncharacteristically foolish move, Marcellus and Crispinus personally led a small scouting party to survey the area, only for a swath of Numidians and skirmishers to come barreling out of the forest. Crispinus was hit by two missiles and mortally wounded, but escaped the immediate carnage, while Marcellus was run through the side by a cavalry lance and killed. Hannibal was elated by his success, though he went out of his way to treat the fallen consul's body with the proper rites. With the death of Marcellus, Rome lost one of its greatest champions, and the demise of both consuls was a blow not felt since the disaster at Cannae. While the war in Italy had its ups and downs, there were major developments occurring outside of the peninsula near the Atlantic Ocean. Let us pause the war in Italy and turn our attention to Spain where the Republic was making headway against Carthage's Iberian holdings thanks to the Scipiones family, including the future Scipio Africanus. Ben, we're on someone else's podcast. Let's not intrude too much. You've got 30 seconds to tell this wonderful listenership about the conference. Shoot. Oh, okay. Uh, Intelligent Speech is back. Again, it's a conference that brings together your favorite educational podcasters with their fans in an intense one-day online extravaganza. It's all happening online on June 25th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Between the three keynotes and the 42 individual sessions and roundtables, it's a three-ring circus of online content. Wow, what are they going to be speaking about? Our theme this year is crossings of one form or another. Very arty, very chic. Amazing. Where can people get tickets? Intelligent Speech Conference, all one word, dot com. And tickets are $30, but if you act now, you will get the early bird special of $20. And if you use this show's promo code, which hopefully the host will shortly provide, you will save an additional 10%. Wow! Cue rousing music. Awesome. 
Unlike Sicily or Illyria, the Roman Senate fully committed to launching a major invasion of Spain at the start of the war. Not only was the destruction of one of its allied cities the main catalyst for the conflict, Spain was an important strategic target. The local Celtiberian tribes provided tens of thousands of soldiers for Punic armies, and the Carthaginian treasury would never be bereft of silver, so long as the mines continued to operate without interruption. Hannibal made its value all too clear when he left his brother Hasdrubal in charge of his Iberian holdings after crossing the Ebro River, and the youngest Barkid's son, Mago, would actually leave Italy to reinforce Hasdrubal's position in 215. Commanding the Roman Expeditionary Force, numbering nearly 25,000 strong, would be the brothers Gnaeus and Publius Scipio, the latter moving to Spain in 217 after surviving the defeat at the Trebia. Between 218 and 211, the main goal of the Romans was to tie up Hasdrubal's forces to prevent him from sending any assistance to Hannibal. Much of the fighting would take place on the eastern coast of Spain, with the proconsuls managing to recover the city of Saguntum from Punic control in 212. In their efforts to secure victory, the art of diplomacy was as important as the art of war when it came to gaining the allegiance of the local Celtiberian leaders. According to Livy, over 120 Spanish tribes were said to have defected to the Scipio brothers over the course of the campaign. Admittedly, much of their diplomatic success would be tied directly to their prowess in battle against Hasdrubal and his ilk, and the Romans could redirect the tribe's more aggressive tendencies against Carthaginian-backed neighbors. Rather than being forged between the chieftains and the Republic, many Iberians saw the relationship as a personal one between themselves and the Scipiones, which would partially explain the later success of the younger Publius Scipio. While not as great of a commander as his brother, Hasdrubal made do with what he had, and still needed to deal with revolts in both Spain and Africa alike but 211 proved to be something of a disaster for Rome's Spanish operations. In an effort to destroy the Carthaginians outright, the brothers split their forces in half so they could deal with the armies of Hasdrubal Barca and other Punic generals. In his haste to pursue reinforcements headed to the Barcid camp, Publius was killed in a skirmish after being struck in the chest by a javelin. Gnaeus would also meet his demise less than a month later and it appeared that the Romans were back to square one in a theater that had been going remarkably smooth throughout the entirety of the war. When the elections of 210 came around, few if any candidates threw their hat into the ring to acquire the seat for proprietor of Spain. Livy suggests that this was not a particularly desirable post, for even though some of the surviving officers and generals were able to prevent any substantial Carthaginian gains, there were serious problems with regards to morale and supplies. Only about 10,000 additional soldiers were available to bring over to reinforce the 18,000 or so that were stationed in Spain, a third of the total number of Carthaginian troops in the region. Trying to contend with this on top of the resurgent Carthaginian military presence and any wayward Celtiberians was going to be a serious undertaking for even an experienced commander. But to the delight of the crowd, one man stepped forward to undertake this operation, Publius Scipio the Younger the son of the now-deceased elder Publius Scipio. This choice was quite exceptional, for although he had been actively serving since Hannibal's invasion, Scipio was no more than 24 years old at the time he assumed command. This was not in accordance with Roman custom, since such a position would have required him to have passed through the cursus honorum and usually serve a term as consul by his early 40s. Technically, he would not have been elected in a popular vote either, but appointed directly by the Senate instead. 
These were desperate times, however, and given the general lack of talent and limited resources available for the job, the Senate could not turn its nose when help presented itself. With the death of his father and uncle, Scipio was also the paterfamilias of his highly respected and influential family, and it would have been a matter of pride that he continue where his predecessors left off. But young Scipio demonstrated that he was more than just a mere pup looking to restore his clan's honor, and it is in Spain where he honed his craft on his journey to becoming one of the greatest commanders of antiquity. He was rather unorthodox in style. With longer hair, a youthful beardless visage, and philhellenic tastes, he resembled Alexander the Great more than a traditional Roman commander, a comparison that Scipio did not shy away from. Yet his bravery and ability to lead could not be doubted. His first order of business in 209 was to order a siege of New Carthage, the largest Punic colony in Iberia that was set up by Hamilcar Barca two decades prior. A bold strategy for it would severely damage the stability of Carthage's holdings given its strategic and symbolic value, and it hosted the Barcid war chest containing many tons of silver. It may have even seemed foolish given the lack of manpower under his employ and the defenses of the city, but Scipio would capitalize on the overconfidence of the Barca brothers, who dispersed their armies across Iberia and left behind only a small garrison to guard the city. Through careful observation of the tide's fluctuation in the harbor, he coordinated a two-fold attack by land and sea that saw the Romans successfully get past the walls and storm the settlement, claiming the Carthaginian crown jewel of Iberia, and all the valuables that came with it. This was a shocking blow to the Barcids, who tried to retake the city and destroy the Roman force. In 208, Hasdrubal and Scipio clashed near the town of Baikula in the modern Hayen province, with the young commander coming out the victor in his first major battle. The Celtiberian elites began to take the young Scipio quite seriously, and gradually defected over to his side. Like with his father and uncle, diplomacy manifested itself as personal relationships, and Scipio was very conscious to earn their trust by safely returning the Spanish wives and children he captured in this taking of cities. This was reciprocated by the chieftain saluting him as king, an honor that was firmly but politely declined and upwards of half of Scipio's army were local Iberian warriors. Still, these tribes could be fickle. A rumor of Scipio's death prompted one of the local rulers to kickstart a major revolt that had to be put down by the commander. This same rumor also sparked a mutiny among some of his own soldiers, many tiring of their service and demanding their back pay, and Scipio was able to calm his war-weary troops before ruthlessly executing the ringleaders of the plot. Down, but not out, the 60,000-strong army of the Carthaginians still outnumbered the Roman force of 45,000, and were now under the command of Hasdrubal Gizgo, a new general taking over the responsibility of Hasdrubal Barca. 207 was largely uneventful, but the next year saw Hasdrubal Gizgo and Mago Barca bring their army to the region of Ilipa, modern Seville, where he positioned his troops on top of a fortified hill overlooking the plains below to coax the Romans into one final engagement. Scipio saw fit to meet this challenge, and while he initially deployed his infantry in a traditional manner, his troops were able to skillfully maneuver in the midst of the battle to outflank the Punic force. The Romans utterly destroyed their foes, a testament to Scipio's tactical ingenuity and rigorous training of his men that enabled them to trounce a much larger army, something that was unheard of for much of the Hannibalic War. The last remaining Carthaginian stronghold at Gadi soon surrendered as the Punic commanders considered Iberia to be a lost cause, 
and retreated back to Africa. With the capture of Gades and the expulsion of the Barcids, much of southern Spain fell permanently under the authority of Rome, at least Carthage's former holdings. The rest of the Iberian Peninsula would not be fully conquered until the reign of Augustus Caesar, however, and many of the tribes would rise up in rebellion or raid into Roman Iberia, causing problems for the next two centuries. Still, the success of Scipio cannot be underestimated, for he at a tender age had seized an integral part of the Carthaginian Empire in only a few years, despite the odds stacked against him, enriching the strained Roman treasury with mountains of silver that he displayed in Rome following his return to Italy at the end of 206. What happened to Hannibal's brothers, Hasdrubal and Mago? As I explained earlier, one of the main objectives of the Spanish expedition was to prevent other sons from Hamilcar Barca from invading Italy and providing Hannibal with the additional troops and supplies he would need. For the most part, the fighting in the region kept the Punic commanders occupied, but when news of the floundering war effort in Italy reached their camps, they opted to cut their losses in order to come to the aid of their elder brother. After the Battle of Baecula in 208, Hasdrubal led his army along Hannibal's former route, cutting through Gaul and the Alps before arriving in Italy by the spring of 207, though it is worthy to note that he faced much less trouble making his crossing thanks to his trailblazing older brother. Despite killing both of the Roman consuls the year prior, Hannibal had been struggling to hold his position, and was pushed ever deeper into the heel of the Italian peninsula. A second Carthaginian army, bolstered by a great number of Celts recruited by Hasdrubal along the way, would give him the breathing room that he needed, and he had hoped to coordinate with his brother to lead the Romans into a two-front war in Italy. Unfortunately for the Barcids, the current consul Gaius Claudius Nero had captured one of the Carthaginian messengers, and with the extracted knowledge he was able to predict the movements of Hasdrubal's army. Joined by his co-consul Marcus Livius Salinator, Nero confronted Hasdrubal in June of that year at the Metaurus River in northeastern Italy. The Carthaginians tried to dodge the Romans, hoping to get around them and make their way to Hannibal's camp, but they were caught in the act and forced into open battle. The fighting was fierce, but the quick thinking of Nero allowed him to pull a body of soldiers and wheel around the Carthaginian right flank. Hasdrubal was caught and was either cut down or committed suicide in the fighting, along with 10,000 of his troops dying in the battle, with the rest fleeing into the countryside. With respect to the movements of Hannibal's surviving brother Mago, he made his way towards Italy after the loss of Spain, first making a pit stop on the Balearic Islands before landing in Liguria in the border of Gaul and Italy. There he intended to gather numerous mercenaries and bring another army to the peninsula by 204. But like with Hasdrubal, he too was cornered by a consular army, and suffered injuries in a battle that led to his death in 203. The demise of the Barca brothers, especially the loss of the Metaurus River, was the final nail in the coffin for Hannibal's war in Italy, and he himself fell into a great depression upon learning the fate of his siblings. Rome dominated virtually all theaters of conflict, and the noose slowly tightened around the Carthaginians. The war would move into its final stages, and would lead to exactly what Hannibal feared most, a Roman army at the gates of Carthage itself. By this point in the war, 
Sicily had supplicated, Spain submitted, and Macedonia was mollified. Most of the rebellious Italian communities were brought back into the fold, and the Celtic tribes to the north were unable to link up with Hannibal, though they would continue to cause problems, such as their sack of Placentia in 200. Hasdrubal and Mago were dead, and so were the chances of a reinforcing Carthaginian army to divide the attention of the Romans. Hannibal was contained in Brutium, and though his prospects looked increasingly hopeless, he was still a dangerous threat. Any attempts to dislodge him from his position were going to be tricky, and decisions regarding the next steps were under debate in the Roman Senate. Scipio, on the other hand, envisioned a daring scheme to finally drive the Barkids out of Italy, an invasion of Africa. It wouldn't be the first time the legions would march on Carthaginian territory. Marcus Atilius Regulus led an ill-fated expedition during the First Punic War, and Tiberius Sempronius Longus was actually on the way to invade North Africa in 218, before returning to Italy to confront Hannibal. Scipio knew that Hannibal would almost certainly leave Europe to protect Carthage, especially if the Carthaginian Senate felt pressured enough to demand his return. But the venture would necessitate a great amount of resources and manpower to pull off. However, Scipio also knew that victory was not going to be achieved by merely driving Hannibal out of Italy, but by crushing the Punic city and demanding its submission to Roman authority outright. One of Scipio's fiercest opponents was none other than Fabius Maximus himself. Fabius was ultimately concerned for the sake of Italy, as he felt that such a large invasion would deprive the peninsula of the manpower required to defend it against a possible Carthaginian attack. It is also possible that this rivalry stemmed from jealousy on the elder statement's part, as Plutarch suggests. A staunch conservative, Scipio's ambition and unabashed willingness to fluff up his own image left a bad taste in the delayer's mouth. His position overseeing Spain was already unprecedented, but Roman custom was defied once again when he was elected to the position of consul in 205, at the tender age of 30, when the position was normally only available to those 42 years and older. Despite being renowned as one of the greatest Romans within living memory, Fabius feared that if Scipio won the war through an aggressive military operation, he would be considered an abject coward for advising a cautious strategy against Hannibal's army. This excessive concern for his personal honor seems out of character, but Fabius was said to have become increasingly morose and emotional in his final years, a likely consequence of the recent death of his beloved son, and the stress of overseeing the security of Italy for the better part of two decades. One of the critics supporting the denouncement of Scipio was Cato, a novice homo who greatly admired Fabius and attacked Scipio's excessive Philhellenism and un-Roman style of leadership. This man would in time be better known as the cantankerous Cato the Elder, and one of the fiercest advocates for Carthage's eventual destruction. Yet Fabius and Cato were outnumbered by those in favor of the African invasion. Scipio was granted the consulship and the right to lead an army into Africa. A stipulation was required that Scipio provide the necessary funds and manpower out of his own pocket for the expedition. Money was in no short supply, with the booty collected in Spain and generous donations from excited Italian towns providing ample food and equipment. Raising troops was not going to be a problem either. His own experienced force, hardened by their campaigns in Spain, would be more than the match for any of Hannibal's veterans or African troops scrounged up to defend their city. His reputation for victories also attracted many volunteers, 
looking either to take their revenge or to enrich themselves with Carthaginian treasure. Nearly 30,000 Roman soldiers took part, and were stationed in Sicily awaiting their commander's arrival. But Scipio could also count on allies to assist in his expedition. Enter Massinissa, a prince of the Massilii tribe of Numidia. Massinissa and his father, King Gala, were allied with Carthage for much of the Second Punic War, and fought bravely against the Romans. Considered by Livy and Polybius to be one of the greatest men of his age, the prince spent almost a decade in Spain warring against the Scipiones until the Battle of Ilippa in 206. For his loyalty, he was promised the hand of the beautiful Carthaginian noblewoman Safonisba, a love match that inspired dozens of plays and works of art over the millennia for its tragic nature. As is fitting, numerous factors would end up driving a wedge between Massinissa and the Carthaginians. For starters, Gala would die in roughly 207-206, but his kingdom would be passed to Oizalkes, who in turn would die only a few months later. Before he could return to Numidia to be coronated, a Massilian nobleman named Mazaitolus killed Oizalkes' eldest son and declared himself the guardian of a surviving prince, seizing the throne in all but name. Massinissa led an army back to Numidia and successfully reclaimed his throne from the pretender, but this move was not entirely appreciated in Carthage. Mazaitolus was married to Hannibal's niece, and the Carthaginians had no interest in involving themselves in the civil war as long as they were given the troops and supplies that they needed. Aside from that, the Punic leadership had been looking towards other prospects to prepare for the inevitable Roman invasion, namely the Numidian king Syphax. He was the wealthy ruler of the rival Massasulian tribe, initially recruited by the Romans to engage in a proxy war against both Carthage and the Massilians, and the Senate even sent military advisors to instruct Syphax's army. With the tide turning against them, the elders of Carthage opted to secure his loyalty by any means possible. Scipio made a personal visit to the king to try and convince him to renew his friendship with Rome instead, jeopardizing his own safely by traveling alone, which indicates how important of a role the Numidians played in the conflict. While Syphax initially promised Scipio his continued loyalty, the Carthaginians sweetened the deal by offering Sophonisba to him instead. A loyal daughter and a Carthaginian patriot, she used her charm and intelligence to woo Syphax into moving in favor of her homeland, and so he ended up defecting to the Punic side. They directed the Massaisulian king to attack the vulnerable Massilians, crushing Massinissa in a battle that left him with only a handful of troops. With such injuries inflicted against his person, Massinissa rightly felt abandoned by the Carthaginians, and so he turned instead to his former adversary. After meeting each other in Gades during the end of Scipio's campaigns in Spain, Massinissa pledged his friendship to both Scipio and the Roman Republic, one which he would loyally maintain for nearly 60 years. In the spring of 204, a fleet of 40 quinquereims and over 400 transport vessels sailed from the city of Lilibium to the shores of Carthage, landing near the city of Utica at Cape Farina in modern Tunisia. To the horror of his superstitious comrades, Scipio himself is said to have stumbled and fell upon the beach as he disembarked from his ship, only to gleefully save face by proclaiming that he had struck a hard blow against Africa. The Romans and Massinissa's cavalrymen immediately set about plundering the African countryside, and destroying the Carthaginian tribe to stymie their progress, while Scipio prepared to besiege Utica. 
A sort of impasse quickly formed throughout the rest of the year as the Romans were struggling to make headway against Utica while the Carthaginians were unable to keep them from ravaging the lands around them. The winter of 204-203 saw an ongoing negotiations between Scipio and the Hasdrubal Gizgo, but arbitrated by King Syphax, who pushed for a treaty that would see the exit of foreign parties from their respective lands. Scipio appeared to entertain the notion, but in reality was only intending to buy time. Roman soldiers disguised as slaves moved around the Carthaginian camp, gathering information about its layout and the number of men inside of it. One evening, the Numidians and Carthaginians awoke from their slumber, after the smell of ash and smoke filled their huts, along with panicked screams and shouts. Scipio used his reconnaissance to launch a night attack, sending his loyal officer Gaius Lilius and Massinissa to devastate Syphax's camp as his own army torched Hasdrubal's. Thousands were killed, and Syphax and Hasdrubal barely managed to escape with their lives. Though the Roman and Greek authors may have been backwards trying to whitewash Scipio's willingness to use treachery under the auspices of a truce, the consul was utterly ruthless in his determination to win the war. Meanwhile, Hasdrubal and Syphax regrouped after summoning more troops, leading a combined army of 30,000 to a location known as the Great Plains. The Romans soon set out to meet them, and the combined leadership of Scipio and Massinissa utterly crushed the Carthaginian Numidian force, scattering what appeared to be Carthage's last hope. Syphax had been driven abroad to his capital city of Kirta in modern Algeria, and Scipio felt confident enough to entrust Massinissa and Gaius Lilius with enough soldiers to restore the exiled Numidian to his throne. Kirta's inhabitants quickly surrendered, and Syphax was taken by the Romans in chains. Though Massinissa gained back his kingdom, the reunion with his beloved Safanisba ended in tragedy, as she opted to commit suicide rather than be taken prisoner by the Romans. Nevertheless, the entirety of Numidia now belonged in Massinissa's hands, and Scipio was free to march against Carthage unmolested. Following the Battle of the Great Plains and the surrender of Syphax, the people of Carthage were in a state of fright and horror. After a failed counterattack against the besiegers of Utica, and with the Roman army only a few miles from their walls, a group of Carthaginian ambassadors made their way to the camp of Scipio under the banner of truce. Terms were offered, and though the Punic envoys appeared to nod and agree to the demands being presented to them, their true motive was to send messengers across the sea and bring Hannibal Barca back to Africa. Proposals demanding Hannibal's return were thrown around by the members of the council following Scipio's night attack, but the defeat at the Great Plains was the impetus to move forward with it, as the elders could not entertain the idea of their greatest general remaining on Italian soil while their mother city fell to Scipio's army. These negotiations with Scipio were likely just a ruse, so that they could delay the impending siege before the Barcid commander came to the rescue. The order to return home was not taken too kindly by Hannibal, who is said to have been in the state fluctuating between fury and sorrow. Truthfully, he was at his lowest point, as he was now cornered in Brutium, both his brothers having been killed trying to reinforce him. But to Hannibal, history had repeated itself, and he bemoaned the fact that he ended up sharing the same fate as his father, Hamilcar, both of them being hamstrung by a weak-willed aristocracy that caved at the slightest bit of pressure, while giving little support to its generals who were on the front lines. As per Livy, the general cried out against his fate by proclaiming, quote, 
Those men who were long trying to drag me back here by blockading the shipment of reinforcements and cash are no longer using devious means to recall me, but doing it openly. So Hannibal has not been defeated by the Roman people, who have been so often slaughtered or routed, but by the Carthaginian Senate with its carping jealousy. After 16 years of fighting in the peninsula, Hannibal would depart from the shores of Italy back home to Carthage at the close of summer, evacuating with whatever was left of his army. He landed some distance away from Carthage near the town of Hadramentum, but his arrival was enough to give the Carthaginians a cause for celebration, and they defied the terms of the treaty by attacking the Roman ships and the ambassadors inside of the city. Scipio, somewhat hypocritically, was infuriated at the betrayal of the truce, and set about a campaign of fire and sword to ravage the countryside and enslave any he came across. Near the modern Siliana government in Tunisia, the Roman and Carthaginian armies would meet at the plains of Zama for a final confrontation in the autumn of 202. According to our sources, Hannibal possessed a larger army than that of Scipio, though the exact numbers are not really given or are wildly out of proportion but we can assume that the Roman army had around 20,000 troops, and the number of Carthaginian soldiers was roughly 30,000. In contrast to Hannibal's earlier engagements, the Romans now held the upper hand in terms of cavalry thanks to Massinissa and his 4,000 Numidian riders, aided by the flat plains that surrounded the area. Perhaps Hannibal could counteract them with his own cavalry force of 2,000 horsemen and 80 war elephants, but by this point the Romans were accustomed to their presence and the disciplined veterans could handle them if they came in contact with the beasts. These experienced soldiers were far better trained than those of Hannibal, as most of his original veteran force had been gradually lost due to attrition, replaced by less seasoned recruits. They would have to do. On the night prior to the battle, a private meeting was held between both commanders, who conversed about the nature of generalship and the fickleness of fortune, which allowed Hannibal to bring Rome to its knees for much of his adulthood, only to leave him as an old man, struggling to defend his country against his hated enemy. After a tense, if polite, conversation, both men returned to their camps and prepared for the trial that lay before them. At dawn, the two armies deployed for battle. The Romans were arrayed in their usual triplex acius formation, with the hastati, principes, and spear-wielding triarii lined up behind one another. They differed in their spacing, though, and the columns of troops were arranged with noticeable gaps between them. Massinissa and his Numidians would be stationed on the right wing, while Lilius would command the Italian cavalry on the left. Hannibal would follow a similar principle to the Romans in keeping his seasoned troops behind the main body of infantry, with his newer recruits such as the Ligurians and Celtiberians in the front, the African troops in the middle, and Hannibal's veterans in the back. On the left would be the remaining allied Numidian horsemen, and the right would be the Carthaginian cavalry, with the infantry being screened by the elephants. These elephants would actually kick off the battle, prompted by their fear of the trumpets and war cries of the men stationed behind them. As they thundered forwards, the columns of Roman troops quickly formed up into wide lanes, allowing the elephants to pass through them without harm. The velites and other skirmishing units then set upon the elephants with javelins like a swarm of angry bees, 
driving the pachyderms out of the infantry lines so they could be destroyed without risking the safety of the legionaries. During this tumult, Lilius and Massinissa charged the Carthaginian cavalry, overwhelming them with their superior numbers and chasing them off the battlefield. With the elephants and horsemen out of the way, the Hastati loudly beat their swords to their shields out of excitement and threw themselves at the opposing front line to the cheers of their comrades. The Gallic warriors and Romans savagely thrashed one another, but the experience of Scipio's men was enabling them to push the Carthaginian army back step by step. The front ranks of Hannibal's army began to retreat, but either killed or were killed by their own men in their attempts to escape through the back. Hannibal's African troops remained steadfast in their phalanx, despite the blood and gore of the bodies that filled the space between them and the enemy line. A trumpet soon sounded from the Romans, recalling the Hastati caught up in the pursuit of the fleeing Gauls so they could return to their positions and resume formation. The leveled spears did little to dissuade the resolve, and the Carthaginian soldiers were no more disturbed by the volleys of javelin and hacking of swords. The battle continued to reap a bloody toll on both sides, but the rumbling of thousands of hooves drawing ever closer to the rear of Hannibal's army signaled the end of the battle, as Lilius and Massinissa led their cavalrymen into a vigorous charge that utterly broke the Carthaginians' resolve. So concluded the Battle of Zama, the Romans suffering a total of 1,500 casualties, while Carthage lost nearly 20,000 in the fighting, and around the same number were captured. Hannibal himself fled back to his ancestral estates in Hadramentum, before delivering the bad news to Carthage in person. Scipio quickly dispatched his own embassy to the city, concerned that another consul or elected official would try to have him replaced and steal the glory of ending the war. The following terms of the treaty were presented to the elders of the city. Carthage was to be disarmed, giving up their entire naval fleet and war elephants, barring ten triremes. Along with their reduced military capabilities, they were also not allowed to declare war against any power within or outside of Africa without being first given the Senate's approval. All prisoners of war and Roman deserters must be returned, and 100 males with the Carthaginian elite would be handpicked by Scipio to remain as hostages in Rome. With regards to monetary compensation, 200 talents of silver per year were to be paid out to Rome over the next 50 years, amounting to 10,000 talents in total or about ten times the amount paid after the end of the First Punic War. In return, Carthage was allowed to keep its cities and territories in Africa that were held prior to the war, though King Massinissa's claims were to be protected. Polybius himself considered this to be a fair punishment for the aggressors in a war that had caused as much devastation as it did. Perhaps Rome had learned its lesson from the Treaty of Lutatius and its dealings. This does not mean that it was positively received by the Carthaginian Senate or its citizenry, who protested the terms and considered the possibility of refusing it outright. Ironically, one of the fiercest proponents of agreeing to the terms of the treaty was none other than Hannibal himself, who was enraged to find out that members of the council were dragging their feet on the matter. He violently grabbed the most vocal of these speakers and yanked him off the council floor at first excusing himself on account of his military manners, before urging his fellows to think rationally, and to salvage what they can lest the Romans decide to destroy the city and enslave its people. With little in the way of options, the elders agreed to Scipio's terms, and following its ratification by the Roman Senate, the Second Punic War had finally been brought to an end. Upon hearing the news of the treaty, 
The joy and adulation in Rome was beyond description. Scipio, now given the cognomen Africanus to celebrate his victories, held the largest triumph in Roman history up to that point, presenting over 120,000 pounds of silver in his parade. Arguably the most powerful and widely respected man in the Republic, he and his descendants would continue to dominate the political life of Rome for most of the second century, playing key roles in the expansion of its borders, or finding themselves embroiled in controversy. Fabius Maximus, the shield of Rome, never lived to see the ultimate triumph over Carthage, for he had died the year before, in 203. Despite the bitterness and hatred of Scipio that gripped him in his final years, it is said that every Roman citizen contributed money to his funeral out of reverence for his role in the defense of Italy. Cato, too, earned a reputation for bravery and loyal service, and would become a major player in Roman politics as a stalwart conservative and moralist. A decade and a half of warfare had exacted a terrible toll on much of Italy, particularly in the southern regions. Appian claims that Hannibal's army had destroyed upwards of 400 settlements and killed over 300,000 Italians. These numbers may seem quite high, but not so much when we consider that Trasimene, Trebia, and Cannae left a body count of about 100,000 dead on the battlefield alone. Never mind the additional casualties of those killed in another decade of fighting, the ravaging of the countryside year after year had repeatedly interrupted the work of the farmers. Starvation was felt throughout the entirety of the peninsula, and diseases would be exacerbated by the resulting malnutrition. Sicily, a great supplier of Italian grains since the First Punic War, was thrown into a state of great upheaval from 215 onwards, and it appears that the Senate had to go so far as to buy massive amounts of grain from Egypt to try and battle the famines. One of Hannibal's main strategies was to undermine the ties between the Romans and the Sacchii, but despite the defection of some high-profile settlements, most remained loyal, even under the threat of attack by the Carthaginians. It was still a tense atmosphere after Hannibal's army absconded to Africa and the peninsula was reunited, but rather than undermining the newly mended relationship or seeking retribution, the Senate decided to grant amnesty to all parties, except for the Brutians, who were among the first to revolt and the last to submit. Though they did not experience any fighting on their territory until the very final years of the war, the Carthaginians found themselves in a very troubled position. Their military had been effectively neutered, they had lost whatever was left of their overseas empire, and were now unable to expand any further. Reparations to Rome were going to have to be paid off, even if they were trying to rebuild what had been destroyed by Scipio's marauding army. Yet, they would be guided through this time of peace by the steady hand of Hannibal Barca. While he had failed to fulfill his life's mission to break the power of Rome, Hannibal pushed away his depression by becoming passionately involved in the politics of the city for the next few years, pushing reforms on taxes and corruption that helped stabilize the Carthaginian economy and assist in the payments to the Republic. Understandably, the Romans were rather suspicious of his intentions and behavior, exacerbated by anti-Barcid factions in both Rome and Carthage that would accuse Hannibal of attempting to seize power. Perhaps looking for any excuse that they could, the Roman Senate issued a formal investigation into Hannibal's actions in 196, demanding his surrender so that he could be taken in for questioning. Barca was not stupid, and he knew that his time in the city was up. A ship was prepared, and in the cover of night he sailed away from Carthage, never to return. Initially he went to Tyre, but eventually made his way to the court of the Seleucid ruler Antiochus III, 
where he remained for much of his later career. Rome was now the uncontested master of the central and western Mediterranean, establishing its first territories in Iberia, and having fought on multiple fronts simultaneously. This pushed the Roman perspective beyond being Italocentric, as it began to be pulled into situations further abroad. For his loyal service to the Republic, King Massinissa earned the friendship of Rome, his position secure as the ruler of all Numidia until the end of his days. Scipio had provided him several gifts as befitting his role, and oversaw his coronation. And while this may be symbolic of Rome's approval of his kingship, it was to Massinissa's benefit. The Senate would consistently show favoritism to Numidia to the detriment of the Carthaginians, which would precipitate the outbreak of the Third Punic War. Anti-monarchical history aside, this pattern of sponsoring the coronation of kings for political gain would become a common fixture of Roman foreign policy, one that they gradually became more comfortable with as time went on. Though the Carthaginians were once again placed under the yoke, the fighting was not yet over for the Roman Republic. King Philip V of Macedonia had earned the ire of the Senate, for he chose to ally with Hannibal in the wake of Trasimene and Cannae to take advantage of the distracted Romans, since he was concerned about the encroachment of this wayward Italian power across the Adriatic. The end of the First Macedonian War was inconclusive, but Rome attracted the attention of some of the factions of the Hellenistic world. Attalus I of Pergamon and the Aetolian League had formed an alliance with Rome against Macedonia in 211, and several Greek states, including Egypt, were mediators overseeing the peace talks between the Senate and Philip. Antiochus III had now received one of the Republic's greatest enemies into his court. The conquest of Syracuse, the largest and wealthiest Greek city west of the Aegean, showed how the Romans were not only eager to seize its treasures, but also much of the works of art. With tens of thousands of battle-hardened legionaries and highly experienced commanders, Rome possessed one of the most formidable fighting forces in the world. Fresh off the heels of their victories in the West, they would now turn their full attention to the Greek East, kickstarting a chain of events that would see them transform from a major European power into the heads of a Mediterranean-wide empire. With that, we can finally bring our look at the Second Punic War to a close. But before you go, I have quite a few announcements to make, so please strap yourselves in. Firstly, I am pleased to announce that I've been invited to be a guest speaker at the Intelligent Speech Conference for 2022, the trailer for which you likely heard earlier in this episode. I, along with several other history podcasters, will be presenting a topic of choice to talk about, with the event taking place online via Zoom on June 25th, starting at 9.45am Eastern Standard Time, and will continue throughout the rest of the day. The title of my talk is going to be Across the Indus, Encounters Between the Greek and Indian Worlds, 323-30 to BC. If you are interested, please do check out the link in the episode notes and the podcast description under the header Intelligent Speech, and for those buying a ticket, you can use the code AGE, that's A-G-E, to get yourself a discount. It'll be great fun, and I do hope you'll be able to join for a wide array of fascinating talks. Secondly, let us talk about the upcoming show schedule. With the Second Punic War done, we will move on to our next topic, the Fourth Syrian War and the early career of Antiochus III. This will cover three episodes, which hopefully will be done by early June. Long awaited by you listeners, we will finally begin our series on the Hellenistic Far East, the story of Greco-Bactria and the Indo-Greeks. 
I have already made the itinerary available on my social media accounts, but suffice it to say that it will comprise 12 episodes in total, with 6 regular episodes and 6 interviews, one released almost every week throughout the rest of the summer. Despite my difficulties over the last several months to adhere to a solid schedule, I already have 4 of these episodes ready to publish, and the rest just need to be recorded. I have put a tremendous amount of time and energy into those scripts, which are double the length of an average episode, and I'm very proud with how they have turned out. We will be there soon, so please, only a little bit longer. Thirdly, I want to let you know that I have once again expanded the collection of show bookmark designs, this time one based upon Hellenistic Egypt, with a portrait of Cleopatra VII emblazoned upon it. It is available on my store page in Etsy, along with my other designs, links to which can be found in my show notes or on my website. This also kind of leans into my last announcement. I've never entertained the idea of a fundraising goal before, but during this upcoming September, I will be finally making a trip to Europe for the first time, more specifically Rome and Naples. Because of this, I am offering a bit of a fundraiser to help offset some of the costs to visit these archaeological sites and museums. For every $100 raised between now and the end of August, I will release smaller bonus episodes based upon topics that I otherwise would not normally cover. For instance, the history of the Rosetta Stone, the imperial iconography of the Seleucid Anchor, reviews or roundtables on media like movies or games based upon the Hellenistic and ancient world, interviews, and more. I'm also open to suggestions, and please do note that these episodes will not be locked behind a paywall but will be community-driven and freely made available for all. Funds can be contributed by either purchasing my bookmarks or donating via coffee, and I will be posting status updates intermittently to give an indication of how much has been donated. Now, that is the last of my status updates. I hope you all enjoyed this series, and in the meanwhile, thank you all so much, and you've been listening to The Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>